0: Let's pray together. Oh, God, we feel we must fall on our knees. And that great carol is sung. So unworthy we are. That you would care to come. That you would love us that deeply. Risking your entire kingdom to save the likes of us. We fall on our knees before you. We worship you. We adore you. We praise you. We call upon you. On this eve of a new year, yet uncharted, we call upon you. Journey with us, Holy Father, and Holy Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There's something about the majestic music of this season that takes the heart By the collar, commands our attention, compels our response. The other great composition, and I'm going to use the word arguably, which I hope I can hide behind, but arguably. This composition is the most performed piece of all classical music and is recognized today as the most famous of all Christian musical works. You got it. George Friedrich Handel's oratorial composition, Messiah. I've heard bits and pieces of the story behind the composition of the Messiah, so I went to Google and I typed, I said, I I asked Google, could you please give me a fuller account of how the Messiah was composed? And of all things, it took me to a blog, a blog written by somebody you may have heard of, Ben Witherington III. He's the Amos Professor of New Testament for Doctoral Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. That would be down in Kentucky. He's on the doctoral faculty at St. Andrew's University in Scotland. We're Andrews, so it's... How did they get the saint, and we didn't? I don't know. Anyway, this is his blog, without question. i just read a few lines just to get to the flavor. And the reason we're going to this is because In our journey, Christmas with Daniel, part two of a little holiday mini-series, we're looking for some stunning titles given to the God who was incarnated in Bethlehem, and Messiah happens to be one of Daniel's. Uniquely Daniel's title, by the way, applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, without question, one of the most famous pieces of music ever written or performed is Handel's Messiah. Note that the title of this work is not the Messiah, but simply Messiah, and it was a German, born in Halle. Is that how you say it? Halle. In sixteen eighty-five. When he was old enough, because he wanted to compose opera, he moves to Italy at the invitation of the de' Medici family. But unfortunately for him, the Pope had just banned opera, and so he was scrambling to compose occasion pieces. He moves to England. 1712. By 1727, he had become a naturalized citizen of the British realm. Now, I'll put his picture up just because we we, we need to have an idea of who this is that we're talking about. There he is. So, he's in England, but in April, listen to this, I didn't know this before, did you? In April of 1737, at the age of 52... Handel seems to have suffered from a stroke which incapacitated him, making it impossible for him to perform, he played the spinet or keyboard, or conduct, because it had paralyzed his right arm and he was right-handed. He also complained of blurred vision. It was only shortly after these calamities in Handel's life that he came across a libretto, which is a text used in an extended musical composition. It's just the text. So he comes across this text composed by Charles Jennings. They became fast friends eventually. Composed entirely of Scripture portions, mainly from the Old Testament, Handel was deeply affected when he read this libretto. It was divided into three parts. Part one, prophecies about the coming Messiah, drawing largely on Isaiah. Part two, the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection of Christ. And part three, the end times with Christ's final victory over sin and death, largely based on the book of Revelation. Inspired... Handel decided he must compose an oratorio based on this libretto, the story of the composition of this most famous of all Christian musical works has been told variously. What we can say with certainty is that he composed the work in a short period of time during the summer of 1741, and when he got to the Hallelujah Chorus, his assistant found him in tears saying, I did think I saw heaven open and saw the very face of God work was first premiered during the Easter season, April 72. Interestingly enough, John Wesley was one of the ones who saw an early performance of this work. In his journal, Wesley commented, there were some parts that were affecting, but I doubt it has staying power. (laughs) Witherington says it's a good thing Wesley didn't go into music. His brother Charles did, and Charles actually got to know Handel a bit before Handel died, visited in his London home on one occasion. Now, Final line here. Fortunately for Handel, King George of England decided that this work was worthy of being attended and supported, and this, in turn, led to one of the most interesting traditions connected to this masterpiece. You know it. When the Hallelujah Chorus began to play in the performance the king attended, he abruptly stood up. Apparently, as I have indicated, he recognized that Christ was the King of Kings. Now, it was normal protocol that if the king stood at any time, no one in his presence sat, and so the entire audience stood for the performance of the Hallelujah Chorus. This tradition has been maintained even until today. Handel could never have anticipated that his work would become perhaps the most performed piece of classical music in all of history. All to the glory of Christ, Wikipedia tells us that on his autographed copy, at the very end, he inscribes the letters SDG, soli Deo gloria, to God alone, the glory. No coincidence, perhaps, that that dedication to God alone, the glory, was the life passion of the ancient prophet who actually gave the name Messiah to the coming one. Messiah only appears twice in the Old Testament. The name in the English... Only appears twice in the Old Testament, both times at the hand of Daniel. Let us go to Daniel. Journey. Let's put the title slide on the screen, please. Christmas with Daniel, a little holiday mini-series. When we're together in the new year, we'll wrap it up. Three titles. Chapter 8, Prince of Princes. Chapter 9, Messiah. Chapter 10, we'll note that title when we're together. Please find Daniel. If you didn't bring a Bible, you'll want to track this. This is an amazing piece of narrative and prophecy. Daniel. Chapter 9 would be page 603 in the Pew, Pew Bible. 603 be the New King James Version, which is what I will be reading right here. Because before the, before the title is introduced, Daniel is in prayer. This is one of the most moving. Hands down, scholars, Bible readers would tell you this is one of the most moving prayers in all of Scripture. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. A lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. He's been pouring over the ancient prophecy. Well, it's not so ancient for him. Jeremiah actually is an older contemporary of his. So on the one hand, Daniel has the scroll of Jeremiah, which God decrees 70 years of captivity. When the 70 years are up, you come back to this land. And by any calculation, the 70 years are nearing an end. But on the other hand, Daniel is still living with the massive time prophecy he records 13 years earlier in chapter 8. Seventy years from Jeremiah's prophecy, but now Daniel's given one that appears to be the equivalent of 2,300 years, and Daniel is sick with the thought that maybe God has changed his mind, and he's swapping out the 70, and he's throwing in the 2,300, and you're never getting home again. And Daniel is desperate, so he pours out his heart to God. Jacques Ducan in his book, Secrets of Daniel, notes that this is the seventh and last prayer recorded in Daniel's book. It's the longest and most important. This is the prayer this chapter introduces for the first time and the last time the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and it will be used seven times in this chapter alone. Only this chapter in the book of Daniel. So let's keep going. The prayer, verse verse 3. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed, verse 4, to the Lord my God, and I made confession. And I said, O Lord, great and awesome God... Who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We, verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Can you believe that? Daniel's prayer is a classic demonstration. what's called collective repentance, corporate repentance. He uses intentionally the first person plural pronoun. We. And by the way, this is Daniel of whose life record there is not a single moral taint or hint of any ethical deviance. He's the most sinless life we can find in all of Scripture outside of the Lord Jesus himself. This is Daniel who says, We have sinned, identifying himself powerfully with Israel. We have fallen. I have a friend over Who's, who's also a pastor, who says, you know what, Dwight, the day's coming when we, our little community of faith is going to be drawn into this collective repentance, this, this, coll- this corporate repenting, just like Daniel, for our own covenant breaking, as it were. Now, that would, that would have to be a radical repentance today. I mean, this is the age where nobody's culpable. <laughs> Not me, it's my parents. That's why I turned out this way. It's my psychiatrist who sent me on the wrong path. It's the school, it's the church. Nobody's culpable. That would be some prayer to pray, wouldn't it? A prayer of repentance, wow. Oh, look it, I can't read the whole prayer, but drop down to verse 8. Oh, Lord, to us, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers and mothers, because we have sinned against you, verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. Now drop down to verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate right now. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name, or we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. No, for we do not, but because of your great mercies. Final line, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Thus concludes one of the greatest prayers ever recorded in sacred literature. And it's the prayer for collective repentance from one whose life is utterly faultless. Apparently, that line in Steps to Christ is absolutely true. Can I put it on the screen for you? You remember this line, Steps to Christ. The closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes, for your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to His perfect nature. You know what? Apparently, Daniel got very close to God because his faults... Our front and center in that passionate prayer. Verse 20. Now, here it goes. The plot thickens. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, verse 21. While I was, <clears throat> while I was, excuse me, while I was speaking in prayer. Hold it right there. I want you to see that lie because there are some of us who are absolutely convinced that our prayers keep bouncing off the dome of heaven or the ceiling above our heads, especially at Christmas time when everyone else seems so happy and contented. But look at look, everybody so happy. Why is everybody so contented? Look at my life. Our own despair grows. Our discouragement deepens. Depression sets in. God obviously is not hearing and answering my prayers this Christmas. My friend, the story of Daniel, graphically, as a pictorial reminder, tells us that God's promise to Isaiah, in fact, is true. Remember these, le- these words? i put it up on the screen for you. Remember Isaiah 65, 25? God says, before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear which, of course, doesn't mean that every time you pray, there, there, <clears throat> there is an obvious, instantaneous, empirically measurable, quantifiable response. Listen to Jesus praying <clears throat> excuse me. Listen to Jesus praying in Gethsemane. He goes on praying. He can't, he, he's not getting an answer. Listen to him praying on Calvary. There's no answer. nothing quantifiable. Bouncing off the ceiling, as it were. What this narrative reveals is that no sooner does a prayer leave the lips of a child of God than that it strikes a responsive chord. This is the point. It strikes a responsive chord immediately, whether you have an answer or not. A chord in the heart of the Father of this universe. Just like that, that prayer. Shing, grabs that heart. Wow! you were still speaking, Daniel, your prayer struck the throne of heaven the very act of praying, by the way, is an answer to his prayer to engage with you. You say, Dwight, I'm, I'm going to quit praying. I'm not getting anything. No, the very act of your praying, you're engaged, God, that God is reaching out to you to engage you. Your praying is drawing you to Jesus. The very act of asking is drawing you to the, to the Savior. Don't quit praying. Well, I'm, I'm sick and tired of it. everybody else gets answers. I don't. No, keep praying. It's drawing you. It's drawing you in. He's the one who's engendering the prayer. Keep praying, girl. Boy, keep praying. It's getting answered. You don't know why I need you to pray this prayer. It's getting answered. Steps to Christ again. I love this. Look at this. Isn't this great? Keep your wants, your joys, your sorrows, your cares and your fears before God. You cannot burden him. Beautiful. You cannot weary him. Just keep asking. I don't get I'm not getting anything, do I? Just keep asking. Take to Him everything that perplexes the mind. Nothing is too great for Him to bear, for He holds up worlds. He rules over all the affairs of the universe. Nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for Him to notice. Nothing that concerns our peace. Keep praying. Just keep praying. And I love this last line. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved son. I got to tell you, my friend, you are loved by God. Don't use answered or not answered as a barometer of how heaven feels. How heaven regards you. That's what Gabriel, by the way, that's what Gabriel's trying to tell Daniel. Look at verse 21 again. Yes, this is Gabriel. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. That would be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They're getting ready for, if Jerusalem were still functioning, it would be the time for the afternoon, evening oblation and offering. By the way, this is the same Gabriel we met last week. This is the Christmas angel Gabriel. This is the the Gabriel who, as one commentator calls him, is the prime minister of the kingdom of heaven. In a parliamentary system, the king rules, but he appoints a prime minister. That prime minister is the representative of the king to all affairs in the kingdom. This is the highest created intelligence in the universe. And God has said, Gabriel, you go. You go to him. This is the Christmas angel. I love the Christmas angel. And did you notice this? That every time he shows up in Luke, in the Christmas story, he always has, he has a little trademark opening statement. Whenever he shows up, when he shows up to Zechariah in the temple, he says, don't be afraid. When he shows up to the teenage virgin Mary, don't be afraid. When he shows up to the, that gaggle of petrified shepherd, don't be afraid. And by the way, when he shows up at the end of Luke's gospel, to the, to the women at the tomb, same don't be afraid. I love that. Good Good news. An important imperative for us moving into a very uncertain new year. Don't be afraid. Ah. And he informed me, this is the same Gabriel, verse 22. And he informed me, Gabriel did, and he talked with me, and he said, "Oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand at the beginning of your supplications... When you started this long prayer, at the very beginning, you engaged the heart of the Father. And the command went forth. Where do you think the command came from? Almighty God himself. The command went forth. And I have come to tell you, for you... Now, I want you to notice this line. For you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Did you catch that line? You are greatly beloved. If only your mind and mine could grasp that reality that we, too, are greatly beloved. You know what? There would be no worry that would last. I mean, what would you be worried about? No lack that could not be filled. No future we could not face. You are greatly beloved. What do we just read? Put that line up again, please, from Steps to Christ. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved son. And now Gabriel plunges into it. Here comes the title now. Here we go. Stunning title. First time applied to the Lord Jesus. Verse 24, 70 weeks. 70 weeks. 77s, as it reads in the Hebrew. 77s, that'd be 490, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Look, Danny, were were you praying a prayer of repentance? 490. Then we deal with all of that. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, here it is, until Messiah the Prince. There'll be seven of those weeks and then another 62 of those weeks. Sixty-nine weeks later, 483 Later, the street will again be built in the wall, even in troublesome times. Now notice verse 26, that after that time period of the 7 and 62, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Verse 27, then he, Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Daniel, the entire sacrificial system is going to come to an end because Messiah is coming. And did you catch that? He will be cut off. Jacques de describes the tense of that verb, signifying brutal and definitive action, implying a violent death. It's strong Calvary language. He will be cut off. Okay, what do you say? What I'm telling you is that God himself is going to step into the stream of human existence and will become the Savior of this world. And he will be called Mashiach, or Messiah. And by his death, Daniel, you will bring end to transgression and iniquity and sin. Mashiach is coming. Let me put that Hebrew word on the screen for you, Mashiach. You can see the English word at the bottom, Messiah. You can see it's a transliteration, fits. It means the anointed one. It's from the verb to anoint. Now, look, when that, when that uh, Mashiach is used in the Old Testament. It can refer to a priest. Moses anointed Aaron and his son, so the priest can get anointed. It can refer to a prophet. Elijah anoints Elisha. It can refer to a king. Samuel anoints first Saul, and then he anoints David. So the anointed one can be priest, prophet, or king. But Gabriel obviously has not descended all the way from heaven to announce that there's going to be another anointed one that will show up one of these days. Are you kidding? Because Gabriel, now listen to this, because Gabriel leaves off the article for Mashiach, There's no article. By that intentional omission, Gabriel is declaring, this is not going to be just another anointed one. The the, the missing article means there is a universalization now. Who who comes? This Mashiach, who comes? Will be priest, prophet, and king, all three in one. Scholars tell us that leaving that article off is like, if you could do this in the Hebrew, writing it in all caps, Mashiach, Messiah, the Anointed One. Can you believe what we just read? Isaac Newton, the great English mathematician. It's no wonder he takes this prophecy in Daniel 9. Let's put a picture of Isaac Newton on the screen there. We have Englishmen featured today. Isaac Newton. Do you know what he calls Daniel 9? The crown jewel of the Old Testament. The crown jewel. Why? Because beginning with stunning precision, this time prophecy, set in motion with the Persian king, Artaxerxes' command in 457 B.C. to restore and build Jerusalem, There'd been a command, you Jews can go back. There'd been another command, you can build your temple. But now this is the third command, you can actually reestablish civil power back in your homeland, beginning with that command, 457 B.C. You can do it, add 483 to it, and you get the only date. Now listen to this. The only date given in all four Gospels that can be verifiable. The only date is given by Luke in Luke 3. Not the date of his birth. Not the date of his death, but can you believe this? The date of his baptism. Until the coming of the anointed one. Luke 3, what happened? The Holy Spirit anointed him. Luke 4, this messianic inaugural sermon. Jesus speaks his opening words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The anointed one. Messiah. Savior of the world. In the Greek, Christos. For whence comes our word, Christ, it means the anointed one, the crown jewel of the universe, Mashiach, Messiah. We say, thank you, Dwight. This is Christmas Eve. We really didn't need a little tutorial on Old Testament prophecies. We thought maybe a few stories and something that would just make us feel good when we go home. Thank you for bringing that up. I want to tell you why this title means something to you and me. Now listen carefully, because this is it. This is what you take home. This is what you tweet. This is what you will remember by the grace of God. What's the big deal about Mashiach? Here's the big deal. Because the title Mashiach came true, because Almighty God Himself tabernacled in human flesh, listen to this, because the title Mashiach is true, that means you and me You and I are also, just like Daniel, greatly beloved today. That's the point. We, today, are greatly beloved. Ah, come on, Dwight, how do you know? He's just saying that to Daniel because he lives his perfect life. Are you kidding? The fact that he came to earth is proof we are greatly loved. Henry, Henry, uh, Gary Eppie, in his book, A Hundred Portraits of Christ, reports how James Irwin, commander for Apollo 15... You remember the Apollo missions to the moon? James Irwin, Apollo 15 commander, said he never felt closer to God than on a space flight. So he's a Christian. You didn't know that. James Irwin. He wanted to relate in this conversation that while walking on the moon, all right? So there is Commander James Irwin on the moon. The thought occurred to him that, quote, this was the greatest event in the history of the world... Man walking on the moon. That's pretty great. (laughs) That's very great. And just like that, Erwin says, just like that, the Lord spoke to me. He said, no, Erwin, the greatest event in the history of the earth is not man walking on the moon. It is God walking on the earth. Whoa. He came. And because he came, you and I can know that just as surely as Daniel was greatly beloved, we are greatly beloved because the Messiah came down and was born on this earth, and he walked on this earth, and he died on this earth, and he was buried in this earth, and he rose from this earth, and he's coming back to this earth. We are greatly loved today. This Christmas, nobody goes home feeling my life's worth nothing. My prayers aren't being answered. I don't have family here. I'm lonely. Nobody cares. Nobody leaves this service today without at least being told, I hope by the Spirit who's speaking in your heart right now, you are greatly beloved. You are greatly beloved. Why do you think I came? I came because you are greatly beloved. Wow. I'm reading a book right now by N.T. Wright, one of the great New Testament scholars in the world from the U.K. I'm talking with a friend of mine this last week, David Ashrick out in California. Dave said, hey, Dwight, what are you reading lately? So I told him what I'm reading. And I said, uh, well, how about you? I said, oh, you've got to read N.T. Wright's book, Justification. So I hung up the phone and went on Amazon.com, ordered the book, and three days later, I'm reading it over the holiday. N.T. Wright. And so as I am, am plunging into this treatment... I came across these words describing God's love for this world, and I love this, and I'll put it on the screen for you. Look at this. N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, Englishman. The great story of Scripture from creation and covenant right on through to the New Jerusalem, the story of the entire Bible, is constantly about God's overflowing, generous, creative love. God's concern, if you like, for the flourishing and well-being of everything else. He's not concerned about Himself. He's concerned for everything else. God, not least God as Trinity, is always giving out, pouring out, lavishing generous love on who? I like this. On undeserving people, undeserving Israel, and on an undeserving world. How did Gabriel put it? Daniel, yo, you are greatly beloved. And my friend... So are you. So are you. If only we knew just how deeply we were loved by the God of the universe at the end of this waning year and on the cusp of an uncharted new year, there would be no worry that could not be conquered. Didn't the Messiah, when he was here, didn't he say, hey, didn't the Messiah say something about, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, a copper penny? Yet does not your Father observe every one of them? And are you not worth more than many sparrows? Didn't the Messiah say that? So what is it that you're worrying about at at the twilight of this year? What is it that is eating your heart out? You are greatly beloved. Let that worry go. He's going to take care of you. He will take care of you i tell you what, if you and I really believe, if, if we could sense how deeply beloved we really are, there would be no lack that could not be filled. I mean, didn't the Messiah say, little children, little flock, it is, the des- it is the good desire of your Father in heaven to give you the entire kingdom. What is it you lack? He's going to give it to you. You may not get it all now. He's going to take care of you. I tell you what, if only we believed that we were deeply loved by the God of the universe at the end of this waning year, there would be no future we could not face. Did not the Messiah declare when he was among us, do not worry about tomorrow, for lo, I am with you always. And by the way, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. There's no future. We need fear because of the Messiah. Oh, if only we really knew just how deeply we were really loved by God. Let me read one more line from Steps to Christ. The heart of God yearns over His earthly children with a love stronger than death. In giving up His Son, He's poured out to us all heaven in one gift, the Savior's life and death and intercession, the ministry of angels, the pleading of the Spirit, the Father working above and through all, the unceasing interest of heavenly beings, all are enlisted in behalf of yours and my redemption. You are greatly beloved, Gabriel declares to Daniel, and the Messiah promises to you and me. You are greatly beloved. What do you say to that? Come on. Does it get any better than that? The king of the ages greatly loves me. Whoa. And because of that, this Christmas, we have every reason to face the new year with hope and confidence. That's what I say. We have every reason to face the new year with hope and confidence. Brennan Manning, in his wonderful book, Lion and Lamb, tells one of my favorite stories. I just love this story. Always trying to find an excuse to share it, so let me share it with you. It was a day before Christmas, Little Richard Ballinger down in Anderson, South Carolina back in 1980. Little Richie, his mother, was busy wrapping packages and she asked, in in her business, she asked her boy to polish her shoes. Soon, with a proud smile that only a seven-year-old can muster, he presented those shoes to his mother for inspection and, oh, she was so pleased that she gave him a quarter. This is 1980. On Christmas morning, mother is putting on her shoes, getting ready to go to church. When she notices a lump in one of her shoes, she takes the shoe off. She turns it upside down and plop into her hand. She finds a quarter wrapped in paper. Written on the paper in a child's scrawl are these words. I done it for love. And that is why Messiah came. Because you too are greatly loved. Never forget it. Never, ever forget that you are greatly loved. I want you to sit back now. Listen as my wife Karen sings a new Christmas song. Welcome to our world. A song about that love.
1: fully falling, hearts are breaking.
0: stand as we pray. Oh, Father. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. We love you. We love you because you first loved us. How you could look into our hearts, our lives this year, And yet declare we are greatly beloved is beyond us. The Calvary's nail prints upon the Messiah are an eloquent proof we are greatly loved. And so, Father, with that in our hearts, we move forth into our lives. Go with us. Love us as we love you every step of the way until Messiah comes again. And let this, this worship gathering be an unbroken circle when Messiah comes. Everyone here, please, dear Father, every family reunited, every circle unbroken greatly love to the end that is the beginning of forever. Till then, we love you and are grateful that you love us. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah, amen.